0: Okay, for our next split sermon, it will be brought to us by Mr. Curtis Whiteley. It is entitled, The Ethics of Faith in Obedience. Well, good afternoon. There we go, I have some enthusiasm there. I tell you what, I was just thinking about few minutes ago about how, you know, I don't really usually give the second message, I usually give a split sermon, I'm usually the first message, and thinking about what the weather's like today, uh, a little rainy outside, a little dreary, of course the rain has went away but it's still a little cloudy, and just thinking about how a lot of things what I'm going to talk about today, specifically about speaking less and things like that, maybe. You, by the end of this message, you will be hoping that I take the advice of what we're looking at here in the epistle of James. So, here we are in the third message in a series that I began back in January entitled, The Ethics of Faith. Today, we're going to wrap up chapter 1. So, it's taken us three messages to get through chapter 1. And I just want to quickly review what we talked about in the last few messages. The first message, we talked about our identity, our identity in Christ. Uh, We talked about our uh, identity in God's plan and what God has planned for us. And then we talked about what James moves into in the second part of his first chapter here in the epistle of James. And that is specifically acting godly or responding godly in trials. And we learned some strange things that James had for us specifically about how we are supposed to count it all joy when we go through all types of trials and we endure all types of temptations. And so James, I just want to kind of mention this, this message is entitled The Ethics of Faith in Obedience. Now, of course, James talks about obedience throughout the entire letter. It's not just this particular chapter itself or this particular section. So I don't want you to think that this is the only part that James talks about obedience. But specifically, he kind of puts a nice little thesis of what exactly he's trying to say. He couches everything that he just mentioned about our trials, our tribulations, our temptations. Some of those things that potentially they could bring. And he couches it with talking about how we are supposed to live out our faith. So as we mentioned in the first message, just to kind of remind you, this overall theme of this book is simply put, walking the walk. Not just being hearers of the word, but being doers of the word. And that's what we're going to look at today. And so today's message is hinged upon three imperatives. James tells us that we are to hear, that we are to receive, and that we are to obey. So we are to hear God's word, we are to receive it and internalize it, and of course we are to walk it. Not just internalize it as hearers, but actually go forth and put those things that God has for us into action. Now I think that this, we would all agree that this is a lot harder than it sounds. I mean, We talk all about these things all the time. In fact, I will just kind of give us a little bit of a warning. Some of these things that we will discuss, number one, relates to what we just went through, the days of Passover, and the days of unleavened bread, and about us putting our old man out of our lives and things of that nature. But it also can come off a little simplistic. And that's okay. You know, sometimes the simplicity of the scriptures is what we need. And so we're gonna look at what James has to say. And we have three objectives and trying to uh, cover the rest of this chapter of James chapter one. The first objective is we want to look at the stumbling blocks that prevent us from hearing God's voice. You know, to hear God's voice, we have to remove the busyness, you know, the, the outside noise that's always around us and trying to you know weed out or phone out God's voice. Our second objective to today is we want to look at how we must put God's voice into action for it to bring the necessary changes that God wills for us. And our third objective, and what James concludes this chapter with, is that we want to see how true obedience implies pure and genuine giving. And that giving, we'll talk about what specifically that giving is when we get there. So let's look at that first little point. Let's go ahead and let's go to James, the first chapter. and We're going to pick it up in verse 19, the very first verse of this particular message today. It says, James tells us, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive, receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. And so with those three objectives I I just gave you, I have three points for us today. And as I mentioned, they might sound overly simplistic, but they come straight from this epistle, come straight from these passages that we are reading. My first point is simply put as, set yourself up to hear God's word. Set yourself up to hear God's word. You might be asking, what do you mean by that? How do we do that? What is it that James is telling us in regards to hearing God's word? We know that we're going to get to that it doesn't stop with hearing. But before we can do the word of God, we have to hear it. The first thing we have to do is we have to block out the hindrances that prevents us from responding to God in a proper way. Three imperatives, three essentials, or three urgent things that James just mentions are... We need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Quick to hear? That's a strange way of putting, hearing. If you think about it. You know, Abraham Lincoln had a famous quote, and it said, better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak out and remove all doubt. And I think that's very true in my life, because I can think of many occasions where I really put my foot in my mouth You know, there's things that I said Where I made myself sound really dumb Or I spoke before I thought And it's interesting about hearing and speaking We have two ears, we've all heard that analogy before We have two ears, one mouth So we should probably do a little bit more hearing and listening than speaking That goes to, you know, just common sense And just the anatomy that God has given us But the interesting thing here is he mingles this idea of speaking and hearing with wrath, with anger. And he's drawing that there's a connection between the two. You know, James, he's looked at as possibly relying very heavily on what biblical scholars sometimes refer to as the Jewish wisdom tradition. And so what that simply is, is just the tradition that... You know, we see from our own Bibles, like the Psalms, the Proverbs. In fact, you could look at James in some ways as being kind of like a New Testament proverb, Because so much of it is wrapped up in practical daily life things. Uh, Life ethics, as the uh, message today and as this uh, series implies. That's what he's focused on. And so the readers that James would be writing to would understand some of those things that we have heard, and of course they had heard, about what the Proverbs have to say. That idea that wisdom is linked with appropriate speech. For example, Proverbs 17, verses 27 and 28 says, He who has knowledge spares his words, and a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. Even a fool is counted wise, when he holds his peace, when he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. And so we see that these elements are related as far as anger and speech and not listening. Hasty speech oftentimes is coupled with a lack of listening. Think about that, think about those times that maybe you aren't listening very much and you're doing all of the talking and sometimes it's prompted by two things. Anger, because you're angry at someone. Someone basically did something to you and you're gonna do all the talking and you're gonna let them have it and you're gonna let them know how you feel about that. And you're not gonna let them do any explanation whatsoever. And any time that they maybe have a comeback, all you're doing in your mind is just thinking about what you're getting ready to say in the next sentence. Anybody ever been in that situation? Where really the entire time that someone's talking to you you're not listening at all, you're just thinking about your comeback. And then your comeback might not even be related or appropriate to what the person just said to you. The second thing that sometimes hasty speech and a lack of listening can be is arrogance. What are you gonna tell me? What do you know that you could offer me? I'm the one here that is the wise one. I should be the speaker here. I should be the one telling you what you need to know. Not you telling me what I need to know. Arrogance. Sometimes can lead to us not listening to somebody because we assume they could never give us any wisdom or tell us something that would be of any value to us. So we see this all throughout the Proverbs. You know, often when people are angry, they refuse to listen, as we just mentioned, or, of course, tempted or prompted or... You know, because of the situation, they do all the talking. And you know, sometimes when anger is involved in that hasty speech, it's also included with explicitives. Anger will produce in us things that are not of what we think our character really is, even as Christians. It results in us maybe not just talking, but yelling. It's accompanied with outbursts of words that are sometimes colorful, adverbial, and objective. And oftentimes, if we look at violence, we can see that anger is also at the root of violence. Now, the interesting thing, that this is accompanied with the idea of the tongue. Think about the tongue. I mean, how do we speak? We speak with our mouth. We speak with our tongue. Think about the small body part a tongue is. We've heard this analogy before. Small, but very, very powerful. Big ships are driven by strong winds, but they are directed by small rudders. Essentially, what we see is is that the tongue, although it is a small body part, can have an extremely large effect. You know, it's interesting that in today's society, the tongue is now... Not just limited to -to face-to-face conversation, but because of social media, because of the internet, the tongue can now basically speak as fast as a click of a button. We see this so often. In fact, today, one of the big problems of social media and the internet among youth is bullying. Digital media has become an issue among adolescents and even elementary and middle school age kids because of bullying. How easy it is to be behind a computer screen and to say things negative, uh, to put people down, to cut people, and I'm talking metaphorically, behind a computer screen. The internet and social media, although it can be great and has wonderful things, but just think of the implications it has for us and how easy it is to get entangled with all of the different outbursts that the tongue can bring, even behind a computer screen. Another example of something small, we know that in 1988, well, you might not know this, but the Yellowstone National Park had a wildfire that basically burned up 800 thousand acres. And that wildfire, what was it started by? Just a flick of a spark. Just a small little bitty fire, a quick flicker, resulted in this. And so there's different areas in our life that we can think of that we need to work on our speech, but it really starts with, of course, realizing what's causing these problems. And oftentimes it can be arrogance as well as anger. You know, there's this old adage we all most of us grew up with that sticks and stones can break my bones but words can never hurt me that is not a true saying in the biblical account at all that's not a true saying in the psychological world at all either there's this story maybe many of you guys have heard this before and it's probably a fake story it was probably made up but it's an interesting analogy and i don't know where i saw it i probably saw it somewhere on one of these social media outlets that I was speaking of. But the story is, is about this, this young boy and his father. And this young boy would lash out and become angry and say really nasty things to his dad or to his mom or to his sister or another sibling or a friend. And one day his dad says, i tell you what, every time you say something ugly, I want you to go outside and I want you to take a nail and I want you to nail a nail into that post outside in the backyard. And so after so many days and weeks and months and even a few years, he started having less and less and less and less nails that he was drilling into this post in the backyard. Until finally, he went a complete month without having to drill or hammer in a nail into a post in that backyard. At that point, his dad had him go out there and he said, now I want you to go and I want you to take every single one of those nails out of this post and so he goes out there and he takes every single one of those nails out of this post and his father looked at him and said see what did you just do you took the nails out of the post but look what it had left even though you have quit saying these negative things even though that you have now removed these negative vicious vulgar anger ridden comments from this post Look at the scars at his left in this post that can never be undone. And so we know that Jesus Christ can heal all things. God, through Christ, through his wounds, there is nothing that God cannot heal. But in this physical life, we have to realize the effect, the consequences that our voices, our mouths, our speech has when talking with one another. In taking care of these things, specifically our speech and what James is getting to, the result is that it enables us to be in a position to not just hear God's word, but to produce the righteousness that God wants and wills for us to produce. You know, this goes along really well. James says basically those things, the anger and quick speech, and, you know, we'll talk about in a minute the overflowing wickedness, does not produce the righteousness of God. And James specifically says in James 3.18, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And so what James is speaking from here is love. Love for brethren, and not just love for brethren where we say we love you, but love for brethren, love for each other, love for our fellow man where we actually act upon it. The righteous life that God desires is a righteous one that not just hears or thinks or cognitively knows that these are the things that we're supposed to do, but actually acts upon them. And we know that J- Jesus also relates even murder to anger, as we've seen in the Gospels. So the second thing we need to do to hear God's word, and we're going to get to what exactly James was talking to in a minute, is by receiving the implanted word in Verse 21. And we'll discuss exactly what the implanted word is in a few minutes. But there's two things that we need to do. And I think James has already started to kind of talk about a part of this. And he says that in order to receive this implanted word, we have to put away the filth and wickedness in our lives. This Greek word filth is the word ripuria, which refers to the external grime as on filthy clothes that are stained or muddy. We just got done celebrating the Feast of Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And these were the ideas that we talked about. About removing that old man and renewing that covenant that we have with our Savior, with Jesus Christ. But the interesting thing here that I like what James brings out because I think it's so... Uh, true and what we see in the world today is he doesn't just mention remove that grime but also that overflow of wickedness which brings out the idea in the Greek this excess, this abundance of sin I don't know about you but if there's one common thing that this world has it's a surplus or an abundance of sin and we see that this is all throughout both the writings of James right here, as well as Paul, as well as Peter. You know, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, through 24, putting off the old man that grows deceitful lust. He also mentions in Colossians 3, chapters 5, or uh, Colossians 3, uh, verses 5 through 8, putting to death earthly members like fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires, covetousness. We also see in 1 Peter 2:1 as newborn babes, as newly begotten creatures of God, We need to lay aside all those old carnal characteristics. And so we see that James uses the same terminology when he's talking about the grime, the filth, when he's talking about the overflow of wickedness that exists and that permeates this world and unfortunately still permeates this Christian life from time to time. He talks about laying aside. Laying aside is always used almost exclusively in the New Testament. refer to as some sort of garment some sort of clothing hebrews the chapter 12 verse 1 says throwing off unnecessary weight clothes to efficiently run the race of faith we've heard that before this christian life is a race and if we want to continue to run this race efficiently we have to continually remove those excessive weights those things that ensnare us and that is exactly what James is getting to here. You know, it's interesting. I think all of us can identify different things in our life. There's different things that you go through than versus what I go through. Uh, there's things that from time to time that you think that maybe you've put away. But they're old foes and they come back and they try to haunt us. They try to, you know, creep back into our life. And so much of that is probably what we... Thought about last week and the week before, and the days of unleavened bread, and putting out that old leaven, but that leaven that still tries to creep in. Because we know that it was a seven day festival, but that festival is symbolic of what we are to do our entire Christian journey. Because it's not just seven days and then we're good, we're clean, we don't have to worry about anything. We still live in this world, we still have that carnal nature, and we still have to fight and to work. You know, in this day and age that we are looking at here in the first century, they didn't fight war like they fight war today. They didn't even fight war quite like they fought, of course, in the last hundred years. They fought war where it was very, you know, you go, you fight, you're a soldier, you basically take care of one enemy soldier, and then right around the corner, another one's going to pop out. It's just constantly coming at you. And so once you basically think that you have conquered one sin in this life, You have to be vigilant because another one can creep up as well. Going back to that analogy that we mentioned, or I don't know if I actually mentioned this. I I don't think I did. I think I skipped that because I want to stay good on time. But the analogy was the idea of a tumor. You know, a few weeks ago, Mr. Ken Barton gave a message about cancer and relating it to sin, relating it to our spiritual health. And he talked a little bit about how, you know, cancer, of course, what does it do? It spreads. And once that cancer spreads, of course, cancer, any kind of cancer is deadly. It's threatening to your health. But if we don't deal with it, the result will be death, eventually. The National Cancer Institute basically says this about what a tumor is, an abnormal mass of tissue that results when cells divide more than they should or do not die when they should. They can be benign, meaning not cancerous, or they can be malignant, which means cancerous. And so as mentioned, the idea that's talked about here, the overflow of wickedness, it's an abundance of sin that exists in this world. Because sin, it's like cancer, it's like a tumor. It multiplies and continues to grow until it is dealt with, until it is treated. The same thing, of course, we can see in our own lives. Maybe we can think of examples. When we don't deal with something, they will pop up. And sometimes dealing with a sin is not a one-time thing. It might be until the very day of your death that you have completed your race before you completely have victory over that sin. That doesn't mean that you are in jeopardy of losing your salvation or that Jesus is not going to forgive you and, or God the Father through Jesus is not going to forgive you. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that a person who is fully on their way of being transformed in the image and likeness of Christ is continually going to have to fight until we are perfect or perfected. And of course, that will not come until after this life. And so to receive this implanted word, we we see we need to remove those things to hear it. And we have to humbly do so, as the passage says. The passage tells us that we have to humbly receive this implanted word. You might be asking, well, are we ever going to get to what exactly this implanted word is? What does James mean when he says, humbly receive the implanted word? We just reviewed several characteristics, or shall we say, not characteristics, but rather prerequisites of what we need to do in order to receive the implanted word, to hear the implanted word. The word implanted in the Greek... Or in Greek thought of the day, refer to something that was innate or inherent from birth as a part of one's nature. And so when we see this word in in the epistle of James, one wonders, is it really talking about something that we have from birth? Of course, God did create us. God created us as receptive human beings, as as receptive uh, beings. He did give us cognitive faculties. He gave us his nature as far as to be able to reason, use rationality, to be constructive, to be creative. He gave us all of those things. But more likely, because scholars have poured over this word for years trying to make sense of it, in the context and in the textual structure that we have here in James, the most likely analogy or liking of what James is referring to is the gospel message which has taken up residence in the believer. It's not something that we just innately have, but rather it's something that God has placed within us, not something of ourselves. And most likely, James is using the passage from Jeremiah, the 31st chapter, verse 33, and talking about the new covenant that God is going to make with Israel and Judah. He says, But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. James is exhorting us to instead of keeping that filthy grime, those filthy clothes, that evil desire that we have in this life, to put that away and receive what God has given us, which is a blessing. This right here is telling us that God is now in us creating a new creature. We just went over that. But not only that, but he is actually, as his spirit meshes with our spirit, he's actually creating a creature where he is internalizing his law within us. And we'll get to how important that is in just a few minutes. So in humility, we see that this is what makes the ground suitable for God's word not just to be received but remember he's talking about implanted that's basically talking about almost like gardening type terminology we have to have a soil that is hardy and that is actually in a condition that can receive the implanted word and allow it to grow as we shall see okay so my second point today is not only are we to hear the word of God not only are we to put those things away because we are That's what God wants us to do He wants us to hear him In order to hear him We have to do these different things So we can be listening to what he has to say But unfortunately so many people Including we can probably even think of ourselves sometimes We stop at just the hearing Because God doesn't intend his words just to stop there My second point is that we must live out the message Don't just hear but do We must set up ourselves to hear God's word so we can set up ourselves to do God's word. This is a very basic and biblically, of course, uh, point that's all throughout the Bible. We see everywhere in the Bible that God intends for his people not to be just hearers, but to be doers, to walk the walk. We can look at Israel while they're in the wilderness, that God wants them to be obedient. Psalm 103 talks about remembering God's precepts, not just to remember them and hear them, but to do them. Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount, he says in uh, Luke the 11th chapter, verse 28, but he said, more than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Even in this day and age, in the first century, Roman and Greek philosophers and moralists of the day emphasized the same idea. Practice what you preach. How many examples can we think of when people don't practice their own words, including ourselves? I think we can think of many different examples. And unfortunately, we see examples of this on TV all the time. We see pastors all the time falling from grace. And I don't mean that they're going to hell. Falling from grace is an expression as, you know, falling from a respectable, uh, you know, ethic of what they're calling or whatever they're uh, whatever job they have is calling them to we see it all the time we see all the time people do not practice what they preach the interesting thing the fact that James has to mention to us not just to be hearers but to doers has two shocking implications think about that James says be a hearer of the word and he actually adds on to that by saying but don't just hear do as well it's not enough just to hear and listen and cognitively know, you also have to do. You have to put in an action. And one implication is this, and James understood this. As people, as human beings, we have the ability to hear and to understand with it having no effect, resulting in no change. In other words, what I mean by this is as human beings, we can hear and know something and not do it. And the intended result or effect does not take place. For example, we can know and understand that certain substances, junk food, alcohol, of course in excess, uh, drugs, uh, different types of other vices, that they are bad for us, that they cause destruction, but yet we continue to engage in them. We can cognitively know something. We can understand something. And of course, that has a lot to do with discipline and things of that nature. We can understand that we need to exercise so many times a week, get our bodies moving, work on our heart health, but we still don't. We can understand that we need to get a certain number of hours of sleep every night, but we don't. We can understand that we need to do, put into action, practice many things that we don't do. So my first implication and just looking at why would James need to tell us to do something, isn't that common sense? Yes, but James understands, and as we, if we think about it, also can understand that knowing something, hearing something is not the same thing as doing something. The second implication is that as people, it is possible to be deceived, and to thinking that we are on the right track when we are in fact not. And this is getting at what James says. A person that says, or just hears, but doesn't do, is a person who deceives himself. The word deceive that James used is the Greek word, or the Greek verb, that means to misreckon. To make a false reckoning. To misunderstand. To think that we are on the right track, when in reality, we are not. We have miscalculated A great illustration of this is Saul and the Amalekites. Maybe you've remembered this story before. Saul was told to destroy everything among the Amalekites. Everything. Man, woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey alike. And so King Saul goes in and does just that. Except he leaves the king, King Agag, alive. As well as the best of the Amalekites' flock, cattle... Land. anything of value well we don't have to we don't have to destroy that let's keep that for ourselves you know I'm a king I have these men I want them to like me I want them to feel like I'm taking care of them and so I'll just reserve that for them and basically stay in good standing with my men Saul comes or Saul comes to Samuel or Samuel rather comes to Saul And Saul says, Bless you, Samuel, I have done all that the Lord said. And Samuel, of course, he didn't buy it. The words that Samuel said was, If you've done all the words that I told you to do, that God has instructed me to tell you, what are these animals that I hear in my ear? It was a matter of trying to convince himself that he had done enough But still, not just appease God, but also appease man. How often times are we tempted to do that? Instead of being a strong ruler, a strong leader, a strong king and saying, no, this is what God says we must do. I don't care if you don't like it. I don't care if you want those animals for yourself. I don't care if you want those valuable things. This is the word of God and I fear him over man. Instead of doing that, he shows his true colors. He shows shows the weakness that he was as a true king. Oh, he can be the biggest, the tallest, the most handsome, have the muscles, look like the great, you know, strong king that, you know, the people thought that they wanted. But when it came to walking the walk, he deceived himself. And there's implications that he even kind of believed some of it. Or at least had lived like this long enough that he had self deceived himself. We also see that Jesus gives criticism as well to the people he comes into contact with. Jesus says in Matthew, the 7th chapter, verse 21 through 23, and talking about people that come to him and say, Lord, Lord, look at the great deeds that we've done in your name. Look at the prophecy that we've done in your name. And Jesus looks at them and says, I never knew you. I never knew you because you did not practice what you were supposed to be practicing you say all these things but you neglect to take serious my word formalize it in you and carry that out Jesus also criticized the religious leaders of his day the same for doing the exact same thing and so the interesting thing here is that James talks about this idea of a forgetful hearer verse 23 just to read that again in 24 For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Now these passages, believe it or not, have been debated among Bible interpreters exactly what James was getting to. And when I mean debated, I don't mean like they don't believe what James is saying is true. But what exactly does James mean? A person is a forgetful hearer or a man is deceiving themselves and they're likened to a man who looks at a mirror and walks away and forgets what he looks like. You see, mirrors in the first century, and we actually see a little illusion of this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, when Paul says that we see through a mirror darkly. We know that mirrors in the ancient world were often made of polished bronze. And so they're not going to be as good as what we have today in our own 21st setting. And so the interesting thing about this is that when we see this word that James says, like a man observing his face in the mirror, it's not just a glance. James isn't saying that a man who just hears and doesn't do is like a man who glances at the mirror real quick and walks away and forgets what he looks like. James is saying that a man who just hears and does not do is like a man who very intently very carefully looks at himself and intensely studies every little characteristic of himself in that mirror now all of us use mirrors on a daily basis or most of us do i can't say all of us because some of us might not some of you guys might think you don't look like you do mr Whiteley. Uh, but anyways that's what i tell my students sometimes We use mirrors on a daily basis. They are often probably, I mean, I don't know if there's a list of things that we could probably take for granted, but as far as different devices that we really use in many different areas of our life, it's probably one of the most taken for granted things or devices that we have. We use mirrors uh, to get ourselves ready to shave. We use mirrors to fix our hair. Uh, Just a little while ago, I used it to make sure that my tie was straight. We use mirrors in our vehicle. To make sure that we, you know, if someone's not uh, to the right lane or to the left lane, if we're gonna change lanes, to look in our rear view mirror to see what's going on behind us. We use mirrors in all different areas of our life. But what do we use them for? We use them to somehow guide or correct something that's not right. Our hair's not in the right position, we use a mirror to help fix that. If we see something that's on our shirt, that's crooked. We use that to fix it. Mirrors are intended, or we, are, we intend to use mirrors to lead us to action. And so what James is saying is, is possibly that a man who just hears the word of God and does not do is a person who is looking at the mirror, giving himself a self-appraisal, and not doing anything about anything that that person might see that's amiss. That's wrong. And the interesting thing about this is that this might have come off as ludicrous to James's hearers. They might have been saying, who would do that? Nobody would do that. Who would be so negligent? Who would be so absolutely you know, non-caring that they would not you know, fix things that they see in the mirror that is obviously amiss or not right? And that the analogy that James is giving is that just as that's ludicrous, a person not fixing obvious problems that they see is just as ludicrous for a person to hear the word of God and not put it into action. Then James uses this other analogy. He talks about another type of mirror, in particular, what's called the perfect law of liberty. In verse 25, it says, but he, after he's talking about the man who looks in a mirror, studies himself, walks away completely forgets what he looks like it says verse 25 but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work this one will be blessed in what he does again the word translated as look in the greek denotes a careful observation the niv says looks intently the nlt look carefully blomberg and camel who wrote a commentary on the book of James, says that this idea, this Greek word, has the idea of a person stooping down and looking closely at something, much like a child might look at a bug on the ground. And so it says the perfect law of liberty, and that word perfect is complete. We know God's law is complete. There's no way around it. The most likely thing that what he's talking about is the law of God, what's known as the Torah, the Torah, as some people call it. We know that God's law is perfect. We're going to get to what we mean by this. It's not about just worshiping the law and things of that nature. But it's literally talking about the freedom. Liberty is a word that means freedom. And we're going to see that when we look at the word freedom. Because we see that liberty is the modifier of the law. And what James is presenting. He says the law of liberty. You know oftentimes people have an entirely different view of what the law is in this world unfortunately Uh, they look at the law as something that's binding on people they look at the law as something that entraps people Uh, but unfortunately uh, or actually fortunate for us unfortunately for them because they're misunderstanding this they don't realize that the law is the exact opposite of what they assume it to be the law is something that is characterized in freedom everywhere you see that the law is presented to us we see that at number one it reveals sin to us it reveals God's will it reveals God's way it makes one free from the world's immorality and the consequences of such things let I me mean, think about it think about the law just the practical physical ramifications of obeying God's law And we've went over that before people who obey God's law are not just doing it because oh look how righteous they are look at them look how pious they are look how devoted they are look how religious we're going to see that James actually argues against this this idea of trying to act like they're religious because of the law that they observe but what we see is is that people who obey God's law if we just look at this we see all the different ensnarements the different consequences that people could be free of if they obey God's law even the philosophers in this day believe that true wisdom or knowledge freed them from the worldly cares even Philo who was a first century Jewish individual that actually tried to and this reason we're bringing this out is that we're actually just trying to think of okay how did current people of this particular day think he thought that the idea of the law people you know for example looking at the law that the law Without it, people were under the bondage of things like anger or desires... ...or they were enslaved to different ideas. They were enslaved to the filth of the world... ...or the carnal excess, as James discusses in verse 20. And so we have two parallels here. We see that the law of God in the Old Testament is a blessing. We see in the first psalm, we see that it's discussed that... ...in contrast, the man who walks in God's ways the man who walks in the path of sinners and wickedness is ensnared and death is his, essentially, is his conclusion. is the end of him. We see Psalm 119 is the longest and most exhaustive chapter in the Bible that echoes this sentiment of the blessing that the law of God brings. And we know that the implanted word, the living out God's word, or will from the heart. Why is it a freedom? Why is it something that, you know, brings us liberty? Well, think about it this way. Not only does it prevent us from maybe having to go through different consequences that maybe certain sins of this life or certain actions or certain behaviors is going to bring us, but also with the idea of the implanted word, think about that, the implanted word meshing with our spirit, creating in us God's will. And so that means in a perfect world, when all is said and done, when we allow God's Spirit to take up residence in us, we allow that implantation to take place within us, that our will will be meshed with God's will. Therefore, our transformation will be that we come in conformity, not to the world, not to ourself, but to the will of God. Therefore, we are free to do what we want because it is God's will doesn't mean that we're free to do what we want. We break God's law. What that means is, is that what we want is to obey God. It is our desire to obey God. Of course, we still are going to have ensnarements. We still are going to have temptations. But when we allow God's Spirit to dwell in us, for that Word to be implanted in us, we literally are going to be following after a law of liberty. Because a law of liberty is something that brings freedom Not just from the world's ensnarements Not just from the physical consequences But also it allows us to be free And in liberty and liberally act out what our will is And that will will be God's And we will be, of course, obeying God's will Our will becomes in line with God's will And so my last point is Take what you have received and give This comes from the last few verses of James chapter 1. We're going to read those. Verse 26 says, If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And you may be asking, where in the world did you get the idea of what you need to do is receive what you have been given and give? Because this is exactly what James is talking about. James talks about many different things, specifically about those who try to externally act like they're religious. For example, a person that's maybe they keep all of God's commandments, or they think they do. They think that, you know, every Sabbath they're, you know, at home. They got the you know the TV turned off. Everything is in line. They're the perfect Sabbath keeper, or they're the perfect holy day keeper. Or they're perfect in in the way that they observe God's law in terms of uh, meat laws. And they go to church every single week, and they never you know maybe they they pray three times a day, and they never miss a prayer. All of these things are all well, good, and great, but James talks about. What are you doing for the orphans and the widows? What are you doing with your tongue? He mentions that a person can actually externally be very religious, but it's worthless if you don't do certain things. Because the true implantation of God's Word is going to be you, not just hearing, but but doing. And doing is, of course, a part of that is genuinely going out there and seeking out, those who are the lowly of society now an interesting little note orphans and widows two examples in this day of some of the most lowly people in society and James is saying a person who is truly religious is not going to forget these two examples in society I think that many of us can think of many other people groups today in our own 21st century setting that are very needy. And if we think about it, widows and orphans are still to this day very important that we need to do things for them. But the interesting thing is is that the implanted word that God has given us in his spirit, every one of us has been also accompanied that gift or that that gift is a that gift of the spirit and of God's law being basically meshed in us is accompanied with a special gift. A gift that God has given each one of us. And so God does not want us to not give of our gift. What do I mean by this? Essentially, what do we do to give back to the world in terms of the lowly of society, our own brethren, and what God has given us? How are we a light to the world if we don't do these things? Just think about this the most needy of society that we have today of course orphans as well as the widows are still needy today and still the lowly today but there's many other people groups as well that we can think of taking care of the needy is one of the most emphasized themes in the entire Old Testament law it was a very important part of God's word was taking care of of those among you who are in need. Why? Because that right there is the quintessential DNA characteristic of God. Who are we? We're individuals in need, every single one of us. And God reached out to me and you because we were in need to save us. It is in the DNA and in the complete characteristic of God To always be looking out for individuals in need. And he wants that characteristic in us. There's so many people, unfortunately, that say that they work in the name of Christ, but refuse to help people. Because maybe that person doesn't go with their political position. Or maybe that person doesn't line up with them theologically. They almost act like Gentiles in what Jesus talks about, about how those who are Gentiles among you only take care of those who basically love them and say good things about them. Of course, I'm paraphrasing. So James is telling us right here, in a way that those of us that have received the implanted word, we don't need to neglect those who are lowly in our society. Can we really convince people of the love of Christ when we refuse to demonstrate it? Can we really convince people that the love of Christ is something real, that the love of Christ is something transformative, when we refuse to act like it towards our fellow man? Not just brethren, not just those ones that we associate with, but the lowly of society and the people that are weird out there, or annoying out there—the ones that we have maybe a hard time associating with because they make us uncomfortable—and so with this message, I want us to remember that we need to hear God's word. We need to remove those hindrances that allows us to hear God's word, but we also need to put God's word into action. And by putting God's word into action, a part of that is also putting our gift into action and to having a heart after God that's more than just being obedient in ritual and religion and following God's law but has a love for the needy of society that has a soft heart for the lowly among us that has a somewhat of a social justice characteristic to them of course in a biblical way and a godly way and so with this wraps up our first chapter of our series, The Ethics on Faith, or The Ethics of Faith and Obedience, and for our homework for next time, read James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, I appreciate it.